0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sachs' Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an associate professor at Clemson University. I'm also your host for this program. Today, I am pleased to be talking with Dr. Denise Williams-Klotz, Assistant Director of Multicultural Student Affairs at Iowa State University, and the author of How to Fail at Flirting and the Fastest Way to Fall. Denise, thank you so much for talking with me today.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm a Georgia alum, so SACSA was my first uh, professional organization home back in the day.
0: Beautiful. There's a, It is a small world, right? Yes. <laughs> we're going to talk more about that in just a second. Um, before we get to the career part, um, you know, we are quick to share who we are in our work world, but it's good to acknowledge we're human beings outside of the job too. So Would you mind sharing some things that you do outside of work? It could be hobbies, things you're reading, watching, listening to. What's your
1: world like? Yeah, well, I have a five-year-old, so that feels like it's a lot of the world, uh, which means I watch a lot of Lion Guard. I've learned a ton about dinosaurs, and um, this morning about... Flatulence and squirrels. So you just you know you never know. Uh, but beyond that, I love photography. I don't get to do it enough, but I do really enjoy photography. And I'm in love with Ted Lasso, which I feel like it's a very student affairsy show, which we can get into. Um, other than that, you know, we're talking about we'll be talking about writing today, which is it's a job for me. It's it's a side hustle now, but it still very much feels like a hobby and a thing that you know I find relaxation in. And so a lot of my time is spent on that, at least right now. Beautiful. Well,
0: what about um, kind of how did you find your way into student affairs? We talk about it being a, a small world. So what's your journey look like? And if you want to highlight, you know, a person or a few people who've been really instrumental in your journey,
1: that would be great. Sure. So I think I have a little bit of an interesting story in terms of student affairs, because I decided I wanted to go into student affairs my freshman year of college. And I was a psychology major. I thought I was going to be a therapist. And then I realized I'm the least empathetic person that has ever empathized. And that wasn't going to work. And I was like, well, maybe I'll be a a psychiatrist. I'll go to medical school. Uh, Chemistry had other plans for that. And so then I was thinking, oh, what am I going to do? I was an orientation leader as an undergrad my freshman year. And at some point in the summer, I asked our graduate assistant, her name was Erin. And I'm just blanking on her last name, but it might come to me later. And I asked her what she did, and she described student affairs, and I was like, "Cool, I'll do that too." And then at that point, I just decided, you know, I'll go all in, and so took every leadership opportunity. I joined um, NASPA's mentoring program; it used to be um, uh, MUFF, it's NUFF now, mm-hmm. and just you know, full board dove into student affairs, and it was the right choice for me. And so that's kind of how I got into it. And then I went to the University of Georgia for the master's program. And that's where I met um, Dr. Marilyn Dunn, who was my major professor who said in a lecture about, I think it was about Kohlberg, but stood on a table and said, I am my meaning making structure and made a big house with her hands. And I actually think about that all the time. I have it written on my bulletin board in my office. I actually use that when I was writing my romance novels. Um, And so it's been really cool to talk with her, you know, just throughout the years. And she's she's read my books, which is really cool. Uh, and then got into housing, and I thought I would be a housing lifer, and then I left after a year and a half, (laughs) and then um, went to orientation. I thought I'd be an orientation lifer and left after a year and a half, and now I've been in uh, programming roles around serving students of color and DEI work for the over the last 10 years, and so that's really where I found a home in student affairs, and then doing lots of data type things, and so I always say that my job involves like working on a spreadsheet and then ordering pizza and then somebody crying in my office and then like repeat. And so that's a really good fit for me. That's, that's kind of my balancing act.
0: That's great. And that, I, I think you've hit on all the key phases of student engagement right there.
1: So. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh,
0: it feels like there's a theory that you should be writing up about that to put into practice. So,
1: yeah, yeah, that feels like something I don't have time to do, but I'll, um, I'll pass that on. I actually, um, oh, and then like I researched with my, my research area, student veterans, and I got my PhD uh, five, six, seven years ago, and so I have that as the side, and I actually thought a, an interesting research project would be student affairs and the side hustle, mm-hmm. and like why people do side hustles, and what they are, and what they get from them. And then I sort of reminded myself that doing research is kind of a side hustle. That's not part of my job right. <laughs> or the one I get paid for. So maybe let's like think about that.
0: That's great. Well, and that, it sets up the transition to my next question perfectly. So thank you for that. But
1: hey, I'm here for you.
0: I know, I know. That's why I really wanted you as a guest because you're going to make me look so good. <laughs> um, so the, the writing that you're doing, the non-academic writing that you're doing, how did that get started you know how how have you made time for it how have you embraced that work all those kinds of things all the how yeah. questions
1: <laughs> so um I always loved to write and I would write like little stories and really horrible angsty poetry in my teens and I just always loved to write but then I started graduate school I didn't really have time to write anything that wasn't academic. I was in the work. I was busy. Um, and so it kind of fell by the wayside, but it's always something i have loved to do, but I never thought much about it. It was just sort of a, oh, there's nothing on TV. Let me write this horrible little poem about a thermos full of green jello, which that's a real poem I wrote. And it's awful. Um, so in 2016, my son was a newborn and I was back to work and it was 2016. I don't know if that needs any more explanation, And um, I sat down one night after he went to bed and I was like, I'm just going to write something small. I just felt like I was losing myself. Like I was buried in work and momming and life. And I just wanted that creative outlet. So I sat down to write what I thought would be a funny little short essay on the role that exes play in shaping us. And then I just kept coming back and writing it. And I didn't know how to write fiction at all. Uh, And so that (laughs) was a lot of editing, but eventually that turned into my debut novel, which is How to Fail Up Flirting. And it changed a lot, but it really came from a place of um, I just wanted to feel connected to something that was just for me Mm -hmm. and finding myself. And that's what that story is. And it's I'd love to say that I planned all of the things that that book turned into, but I fell backwards into them because, again, I didn't know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. But in the end, there was a lot in that book that speaks to finding yourself and higher we can get into all of that, too. But Mm -hmm. that was kind of the, the journey. And so I finished that book and I thought, oh, this is maybe kind of good, I'll show it to some friends. And I showed it to them and it wasn't good. So I edited it and I was like, oh, maybe I'll find some writers and and see what they think. It still wasn't good, so I edited it again. Anybody who's ever written anything kind of knows that iterative process. I had a lot of reviewer twos in my world. And um, finally I thought, well, maybe I'll self-publish this. And then my friends were talking about publishing And they, you know, were bringing up things like querying. And I was like, yeah, I definitely know what that is, as I was Googling it. And that's how you go about finding a literary agent. And a literary agent is a lot like a film agent. Like they represent you and then they sell you books, they pitch you. And it's a super competitive process. It's mostly about people telling you no or not responding at all. Um, And that's how I connected with my agent and then got involved in publishing and sold the book. And it's just been a whirlwind for the last several years that I never planned on because it really started as there was nothing on TV. And I need to do something that doesn't involve this three-month-old.
0: <laughs> well, and I know we're going to talk more about kind of what other projects this has led to. But um, does it? St- you you sort of indicated this earlier, but does it still give you that this is for me and this is a a place I can go? Not just when there's nothing on TV, but you know yeah. when there's something, I ideas I want to play with or whatever. Is it still like a Rejuvenating or uh and does it bring you energy I guess
1: yeah you know it usually does i um I have four books out next year so I've been on a deadline since like July for all uh-huh. these different books uh with one book or another so at a certain point that was maybe less rejuvenating and more um I just need to knock this out so that I can get paid um but yeah generally it's it's creative and it's fun and it's through romance so I write, you know, uh, there's some heavy stuff in my books too, which we can talk about, but there's a lot of banter and like dad jokes and steamy times and, you know, things that for me are really fun to write and like to bring humor in and to just like create a world is getting to be creative in a way that I don't get to be usually in my day job or in my other student affairs side hustles or in the other roles I have on campus. And so it's also like, you know, flexing a different part of my brain. I also actually think that writing and particularly like getting reviews as a write, as a fiction writer has made me a much better like reviewer for like the editorial boards and the journals I review for. Oh, yeah. Like I think I was good before, but I don't know if I was super kind. Um, and I think it's made me more empathetic, but also I bring some of that fiction pacing structure knowledge when I'm reading or writing academically now too.
0: I love that. Well, let's let's talk about the first book. So, you know, without spoiler alerts or including spoiler alerts, however you talk about your work, how would you describe the first book, the the content, you know, if you want to talk about how it evolved over time and how your life in higher education informed it, whatever you want to say about this first book.
1: Sure, so um, how to felt flirting came out almost exactly a year ago today from when we're uh, taping this, so December 2020. And um, I always try to give a, I always do give a content warning for this book because it's not physically in the book, but the heroine is a survivor of uh, intimate partner violence, uh, sexual harassment in the workplace. That comes up and is on the page. Um, There's a brief moment of like physical interaction. And so I have a detailed content warning on my website if folks are interested, but you wanna see that first. Um, and so as I talk about that, I'll talk about it at a high level. Mm-hmm. But the heroine is Dr. Naya Turner. She is a math education professor at a small uh, liberal arts college in Chicago. I made up the college. It's not real. Uh, her department is on the chopping block as a new uh, president has come in and is looking to shake things up and make some changes, which, you know, some people could maybe relate to. She is in a space where she has been out of this uh, violent relationship for about three years, but she really has not done the work for herself to begin that process. So um, as we start the book, she's very closed off. She um, does a lot of kind of avoidant behavior that we might see in somebody who's dealing with that. So um, you know, covers herself and kind of tries not to step out of line, tries not to be noticed, um, has really dived in, dive into her work, but also is in this space now where she sees that she's missing some things for herself and wants to get her life back. And instead of doing the very healthy thing of deciding, hey, let me go to therapy and figure out how to do this. She takes the other route, the type A academic route, and makes a to do list of things she wants to do. And so the whole book is really framed around this to do list. And it starts out with, you know, I'm going I'm to flirt with a stranger, I'm going to put myself out there, maybe on one night stand, um, in addition to all these other things. And cut to her first night out, she meets the hero. They share a lot of bad jokes and some ice cream, and he's afraid of heights. And they go to the top of the John Hancock building and do the, the lookout. Um, and it's just kind of this magical space where she finds this person she can trust. And so throughout the rest of the book is really figuring out how to be with that person. Uh, but along the way, it's also dealing with the university politics, um, dealing with her own trauma, dealing with the um, possibility that she might lose her job, which is really where she's put her entire being into, and then ultimately finding herself. And um, what I love about this book that I did not expect is that since it's come out, and it's been out for a year, I still get messages at least once a week from people who are reading it who say, I saw myself in this story. Um, whether I was in this kind of relationship or um, you know, maybe not to that extent, but I've dealt with this in my life, like that journey. And again, I, I would love to say I planned that. I did not plan that. Um, but to see how pervasive those experiences are I knew that on a logical level, but to hear from people I know, and then to hear from strangers, yes, this mirrors my experience. This was my experience in higher ed. The more uh, frightening was colleagues in student affairs saying and an academia saying, "Is it based on this person? This the the villain? Is it based on this person?" And I was like, "Uh, no." But let's talk about that. Right. Um, and that was where a lot of that came in. And I think folks who are in higher ed. Uh, can see a lot of common things at this university, the, the college professor who I actually really love, he's not based on anybody, but I kind of love him, uh, but you know, wanting to shake things up, and the different kind of faculty archetypes you see around the table, and the just the way kind of that uh, you interact with students, the book opens with kind of a smart aleck student in a classroom, uh, trying this professor, and her just kind of judging him, and I remember my dad read it, and he's like, I like it, but I don't think professors would ever think students are annoying like that. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, they will. <laughs> I'm very confident in that scene resonating with anybody who's ever taught uh, college sophomores. So um, anyway, that's, that's So that's the book. It is, um, it's also, I would say pretty scene-y, uh for most folks, especially if they don't read romance a lot. So. You know there is definitely that physical journey for the heroine, which I actually really love writing those scenes because especially for this heroine who isn't ready to admit some things um, or maybe be honest about all of her experiences, nor does she have to be, but she is able to say things kind of physically. She's able to trust somebody physically in a way that she can't articulate yet with words. And I think that that's true um, for the hero to a less extent too.
0: Yeah, you know, when I was, um, I I sort of did a combination of reading and listening to it, depending on, you know, what my time looked like. First of all, I want to say the student, Quentin or Quentin. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He's not in there very much. It's just like almost a recipe where it's just the right amount at just the right times, you know? (laughs) Um, and so I liked his, his little trajectory, um, adjacent to her world, but one of the things that struck me, it just, um, you know, when you would reference, and I I don't think this gives too much away to say this previous, um, abusive relationship, this previous partner shows up in the book. And your ability to go from lighthearted, flirty banter, you know, and a lot of this is over text, but not all, um, to everything stops. I mean, that happened. It it was just so, um, I don't even know what the right word is. Like, natural doesn't seem like the right word to use, but believable, It, it just felt... Like you were right there with her when those moments happened.
1: Yeah. And I think um, that happened through a lot, of, a lot of editing and hearing from a lot of, you know, a lot of takes of writing that. But, you know, what I ended up really liking about the book and kind of how that landed too, is this idea of that like simultaneity of our experiences. And so, mm-hmm. so many of us are walking around and yeah, we're in student affairs. We know this, we see this daily. So many of us are walking around with trauma that has shaped us. Mm-hmm. and that is, it may be fresh, it may be a long time ago, it may be something we feel like we, we are healing from or we have healed from, it may be things we haven't addressed, but so many of us are walking around with, you know, traumatic experiences that have shaped us and that doesn't preclude us from joy, you know, it doesn't preclude mm-hmm. us from silliness or laughter or love or good sex, uh, you know, it doesn't preclude any of that, but we, st- you know, and sometimes with that trauma is the story and sometimes that trauma is the character, and so I always try to keep that in mind when I'm writing. Is it the story or is it the character? Mm-hmm. And when I think about it being the character, that's sort of how we did that balance of, yeah, again, they're telling, you know, they're telling cheese puns. There's like 17 cheese puns. in each yes. pun. um, And they're having this, you know, fun flirtatious texting. And then, you know, when she comes into contact with her abuser, her mind shifts to a different place. Like so many of us, you know, might. Uh, and so, that's kind of a line I tried to walk. And in my second book, that comes up as well. And less so in some of my later ones. But um, I, I do think that's very real. Mm-hmm. And that's what some of the folks who have messaged have commented on, that they like seeing a character who was like them, who felt like them, who reacted to things like them, who, who flinched sometimes and who hid sometimes and who had flashbacks sometimes, um, still get a happily ever after and mm-hmm. still have a believable relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is in a first-person point of view. And especially for me with the audiobook, I'm like, I wrote this, but I listened to the audio book and I'm like, what's going to happen next? <laughs> um, the narrator is really amazing. Uh, but I think that that's part of it too. And so if you're in the head of the character, mm-hmm. you kind of see all those thought processes too.
0: Well, and I feel like you did, you had such a soft touch with so many issues. I mean, this is a pretty fully developed character, but you don't, it's not like, oh, here's everything that she is all at once. You know, there were different things that came up at different times and all um it's like when you would find out something new about her, it's sort of oh, I wonder how that might relate to this. And it just um I don't know. I, I guess I've read enough where that just can feel very heavy handed. And you need to know all of this before you can engage with this character. And that was not my experience with your work. It was, you'll, you'll learn about her as we go. You know, I'm not going to give you everything up front. And I love that. You know, I, I really thought she spoke the way she would speak instead of, Talking to me as the reader, hey, just so you know these things about me, I'm going to have this inner <laughs> monologue and get up to speed. So,
1: yeah, um, that happened through editing because I definitely <laughs> call it an info dump in writing. And so that was interesting too about going from academic writing to mm-hmm. fiction because initially I was like, okay, well, this is the lit review, and let me like give you all the information you need right here so that you can understand everything that happens later. Um, which works very well with my academic writing and does not work in fiction. Because again, people don't just, I mean, I guess some people do. I've read George R.R. R. Martin where they just monologue for a while, but um, most of us don't do that. And especially when you're in a first person uh, point of view, you, you know, you try to shape what's in their head. Like they would actually be thinking like, you probably wouldn't sit around and reflect on all your own social identity right. like at one time. Like that maybe if you're in student affairs you would or a graduate program but you know otherwise but thank you like that takes a lot of um that took a lot of editing Mm -hmm. but I I like to write that way I think it's kind of fun to like reveal different things about a person but yeah there are a lot of issues in this book I mean there's there's academic politics which may just be traumatic for some Mm -hmm. of us who work in higher ed but you know, there's all of the the aftermath of abuse. She talks, you know, briefly about kind of how race and racism affects her day. She's a multiracial woman. Um, again, that's not the story. That's the character. There is some um, off-page infidelity and, you know, a few other things that kind of come into the story. But again, they're not, they're really the characters. They're not what the story is about. But for me, I, I didn't want to write a woman of color in higher ed. And not touch on how racism might come into their day, because right, that's just right. that's not real. Um, and and that comes up, I think, in some of the other books I've written too, with some other people and other identities. And not that it's always about trauma; sometimes it's just about kind of different life experiences. Mm-hmm.
0: So, was your choice to set the book in higher ed sort of uh, okay? This is a world that I know something about. I've been in it, you know, for. A minute in your career, um, <laughs> or was there something else that maybe informed that choice, or additional that informed that choice?
1: Um, sorry, there's a fire truck driving by. I'm at work right now. <laughs> um, I always knew the. I didn't know a lot about the character at the beginning, but I always knew she was going to be a professor, and I knew it would be in higher ed. And in part because I know the setting, but also that's just how I envisioned the character. But also in 2016, as I think still, there's a lot of vitriol around what universities do and who professors are and what that looked like. And I also just wanted to show somebody who looked like the people that I know, um, who are dealing with a lot, and you can be a professor and be a hot mess in your head. um, And, you know, still be very competent in your work. And it was important to me too, to show her in the classroom and show her talking about her research and show kind of her, her competence and her success in her work world, even as, you know, her personal life is, is a mess and to humanize that role for so many people who maybe don't fully understand what that is.
0: Mm -hmm. And so she is like a pretty innovative professor in a college of education um, around mathematics. And so how did that choice sort of, or was it a choice or was it something that just sort of unfolded?
1: I actually don't remember the choice to make her a, um, a math uh, education professor. I do remember coming up with a fake research agenda and then running it by one of the graduate students who was working us, who's in math education, and mm-hmm. her research is on um um, like ESL, English second second language learners and math education in like elementary school is her research area. And so I wrote this fake study and ran it by a graduate student in this area. I was like, okay, does this sound real? Would this be a realistic gem? He's like, this sounds interesting. i was like, cool. I'm not actually going to do it, but you know, this, uh, this character will. And so you get kind of those touches too. And it doesn't spend a lot of time with her research, but she talks about it a little bit. And her reason for pursuing that is her grandfather um, who was a non-native speaker of English and, and kind of some touches there. And I was actually speaking with a book club here in town this last weekend. And somebody who had a student affairs background was like, I've never read a book that has so much student affairs and stuff in it. And I was like, well, that's because I'm the author. And so like, I'm not going to not talk about social justice in a book because clearly, uh, that's my background. That's my training. That's so much of what I do. And so that was part of it too. But I actually don't remember the why I made her math education. I do not particularly enjoy math. I definitely didn't major in it. I certainly do not have a PhD in it. Uh, but I like showing a woman of color to in a STEM area. Mm-hmm. And I like the connection to education just because I'm an educator and we should always take the opportunity to talk about education as a field. So that I know that was part of it.
0: Well, I just loved it because I read, and again, it's not in there a lot, but it's in there enough. You kind of get a sense of what her scholarship entails, and I was like, "Okay, is Denise this math whiz that I didn't realize, (laughs) or, you know, did she work with somebody who's actually doing this study?" Because it it um, conceptually. Again, I'm, I don't speak math very fluently, but um, conceptually it, it made a lot of sense. And I was like, they can't cut the department. Look at what she's doing, you know? <laughs>
1: right? So, save the well, math education. Great. Yeah, I did, I did a lot of research to make sure I wasn't like using terms wrong. So I hope I got those right, because I'm definitely not pursuing anything in mathematics. But um, that, that was fun. And again, I, I love showing it to my student students like, hey, this is random. Writing a romance novel, can you look at this fake research agenda?
0: <laughs> you know that's gonna be like a three truths and a lie answer for that student for the rest of their life. One oh time gosh, I was asked you know, to I... consult on a romance novel.
1: <laughs> he finished his PhD and it isn't here anymore. I really should message him and uh, just see how he's doing. By the way, that's here's cool. the fake research agenda. Thanks for your help.
0: <laughs> well, you talked about um student affairs showing up in the book, how did that inform the crafting of the storyline? And were there particular moments where you're like, you know what, I want to make sure that I include XYZ? How how did that inform your work?
1: Um, You know, I don't know if it informed it in a real direct way. And I maybe ironically, there's no student affairs professionals in this in this book. The departments that are getting cut are all academic, so that was a fun swap. Um, student Affairs was also, but um, I think it was just more my training in Student Affairs, and so because of Student Affairs, I've had a lot of training on like mental health first response and like, you know, trauma response, and some of those things worked into the book as well as, you know, educational structure and bureaucracy and um, kind of how universities function And so it, it really wasn't intentional, like I'm going to take this part of my student affairs life and put it in this book, but really more thinking about the lenses that we look through things so often in student affairs, when it comes to identities, to care, to, you know, philosophies of education, that those are really woven through in particular ways. And in my second book, The Fastest Way to Fall, it doesn't take place at a university, but some of those same things are in place again, in terms of you know, our our training and our experience working with human people and sometimes inhuman people uh, mm. who have reactions to lots of different things. And that really helps. But also looking at how those social identities come up in different ways and even something as simple as, and I this is not higher ed, but for me, it's thinking about even like pronoun use and what that looks like and what that means. And how do I work that into a book? Because my students and my training has taught me you know, in part why that is so important for a character, for a person. Mm -hmm. And so how do I work that into my book in a way that just fits seamlessly? I think I did better at that in the second book. Um, In a book I have coming out next year, the characters meet on a Zoom call and their first thing they say to each other is, hey, you're muted. And then they introduce their names, and their pronouns, like just how we might start a Zoom call. And um, that's just one example. But I do think the DEI lenses of our work in student affairs has shaped my just cultural awareness of things around me and I try to bring that into my book. Mm
0: -hmm. Well and especially you know in the parts where you're writing about the violence the the trauma and the re-trauma and um you know that character um it's made clear that there's an impact on more than just the uh, protagonist of the book as, as the book goes on, was your decision to include that topic, um, the domestic relationship violence piece, was that there from the beginning or was that something that emerged as you got to know your character a little bit?
1: I think once I figured out the story a little bit more, when I first started writing, it was just a funny story about an ex boyfriend Mm -hmm. that wasn't going anywhere. Um, if you've read the book, the Aaron character is based on uh, somebody I knew in college. And then I completely changed him, but uh, that guy was interesting. And I wonder what happened to him. He was majoring in Irish literature, which is not a major that the institution offered, but anyway, I digress. Um, so I did know that that had been part of her story pretty much from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, it it took some different shapes and I added and, and changed a bunch of things, but I really thought about, you know, who's this character? She's thrown herself into work. Why has she thrown herself into work? And that came to me pretty early on. Um, and that experience is not one that I share. And so I, it was a lot of research and talking to people and making sure that, that was treated um, treated well and honestly, like her her response to the violence. But I, I thought about, you know, what is this thing that would push her in such a significant way to shut down for several years? And then thinking about the pervasiveness of this in society. And then I also thought about that layer of so many people, um, particularly women, but folks of all gender identities who see themselves as educated, who are educated, who are successful, who don't talk about abuse because it seems like something you should know but be- you know, quote, know better mm-hmm. as somebody who has education. And at some point she says that, um, it's an internal monologue and she says it to the, to the hero, Uh, But I think that that's real. And so I wanted to give light to that too. And not just her ignoring that, but her living in that space of, I don't admit that I've been traumatized. My friends know I was in this relationship, but I don't talk about how it's still affecting me because I'm educated. I'm a professional. I have, you know, I have all this years of education. I should quote, know better, which of course is just not true. Uh, And so I kind of knew some of those things going in, but then as I did more research, talked to more people, edited it more, I think that that definitely got flushed out better Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. i really um the dialogue in particular between um the the main character and i'm blanking on what was aaron's wife's name felicia oh my gosh that was again, like you're reading along and it's like you're sitting there in the room with them while they're having this banter back and forth, but there really was this underlying sense of care and um, like the truest friendship commitment, you know, that you could convey. How did that relationship take shape? And, you know, is it drawn from conversations you've had with people, but it just... That that like and even with Aaron, when there were conversations between the three of them, it just felt like you were hanging out, listening to them talk. It was not um, awkward or choppy or anything. It flowed really well. So how did how did you get that on the page?
1: Uh, I actually I love writing friend. Comments. I like writing banter in general. I think it's uh-huh. kind of fun. But you know, friend relationships are so interesting. And initially, I based Felicia off of my, one of my childhood best friends. And I didn't tell her. And when I sent it to her, she's like, I really like this character. And I was like, Oh based they off you. Um, but you know, that, those are some of the earliest scenes that actually came together for me. And I think it's just because I thought about my own friends and,
0: mm-hmm. you know, thought
1: about how would these conversations flow naturally, but also, um, and again, I think this mirrors like academic writing with each scene. I know what I need to accomplish. Like I know when this scene ends, here's the new information I need the reader to have, or here's how I need them to feel or, Here's what the character needs to know that they didn't know going in. And friends are a great way to to do that from a craft perspective, Mm -hmm. because you know, unlike maybe somebody you're in a relationship with or like in a professional setting, there's a lot of things you'll say to your friends, point blank, or that your friends will say to you. And it feels very natural because if you have that direct relationship, Mm -hmm. they can just say those things and you don't have to tiptoe around it. So from a craft perspective, I think friend groups and books are great to do that. But I, yeah, I thought about just good qualities of people in my life who I get a kick out of and who look out for me. And yeah, Naya and Felicia are childhood best friends and um, uh, they're both in, in the next book so you kind of get to see them again. Uh, but I thought about that, you know, the idea of somebody who looks out for you, who has your best interests, but will also call you on things without question <laughs> um, and how valuable those friends are.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that really did come through and uh, Felicia was pretty cool. She was pretty, she, she'll laugh and chuckle, but she was going to hold her accountable and be there to support her as well. So, so what does your practice look like? And, you know, you talked about having to make some changes from your academic writing. So both in terms of like how you craft the work but also like when do you do it you know you have a five-year-old so is it when the flatulating squirrels are on that that's your writing time or you know are you morning evening how what what does your process look like
1: well I had a process and then the pandemic happened so um I'm actually super skilled now at writing heavy dramatic scenes while flagellating squirrels are being not even that's not even a show he just was creating that so um uh the toot squirrels I think is what they were called and so um I don't know I've gotten really good at just like taking whatever time I can but in my ideal world I I typically write after he goes to bed um my I'll spend some time with my husband I'm on the couch writing and he can watch whatever horrible show I have no interest in so uh, I'm much like one of the characters in the book, I've never seen Star Wars. So if there's something Star Wars related, I'm like, yeah, I have at that, real time, get it, um, something anime, I'll be fine. And then I also have gotten really good at using my lunch break. So we're, we're chatting right now on my lunch break at work. And um, I think that's just good habit in general, but I would say like probably many folks listening, I was not good at that for most of my career. I would, you know, grab my sandwich, sit at my desk and keep working, checking emails. And now I actually... If I can, leave my desk, sit at the little table in my office, eat my lunch, and I actually take that time and I write, which is helpful to justify when, again, you're on deadline, you have a book due, or you're just excited about writing something. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that's gotten a little harder since my first book came out because then you're not only writing, you're, um, you're promoting. And so whether it's doing interviews or, um, you know, writing articles or, uh, reviewing things for, like, other writers. There's some of those kind of business EPR PR things. Making TikToks is not technically in my writer description, nor am I good at it, but I still spend an inordinate amount of time trying to be. So <laughs> there's that. But I mean, time-wise, that's kind of the balance. Process-wise, it's varied. Um, with how to fill up learning, I started writing that in fall 2016. And it sold to my publisher in, um, spring of, I think it sold to my, uh, my agent picked it up in fall of 2018 and then it sold in spring of 2019. So I spent a couple of years writing that, tweaking it, perfecting it, uh, going around and around and learning things. And there was no plan. There was no plan at all to write that book. With my second book, I knew a little bit more. I actually wrote the bulk of it in one month, um, in November of, um, 2019, I wrote 2018, one of those. Uh, I wrote 90,000 words in a month. I don't know how I did that. I cannot do that anymore, but I did it then. And then my last book, I probably wrote in three months and then, you know, edited it for a while. So I'm getting a bit more efficient at figuring out what the story is and actually planning it. I've never been an outliner or pre writer. I, My dissertation, I didn't want to do that. Every academic paper I ever wrote, my novels, I don't like to kind of plan ahead, but when I've made myself do that is the writing just get a little faster and cleaner on the first go.
0: Gotcha. So what have some of your like highlights been where, you know, you're walking down the street and it's like, Hey, that's my book. Or you hear it mentioned somewhere. Like what have some of your, I, I'm people are reading my stuff. Oh my mom been.
1: There have been so many. Um, One of them was before the first book came out. It was in Oprah Magazine. And I have a Google alert set up on the book titles. And so before my publicist could tell me, it just popped up on like 4 p.m. in an afternoon that, oh, how to felt flirting in Oprah Magazine. And I remember I like screamed and like ran downstairs and then just like told everybody. It was like, Somebody who works for somebody who works for somebody who works for Oprah read my book. Uh, I don't even know if they read it, but they talked about it, they put it in magazines. And you know, it, it got a lot of, um, I have amazing publicists, with Random House. And so, you know, it was reviewed in the Washington Post and um, in all of the kind of writing trade magazines. It was in Cosmo and, and, you know, it was in the, it was like in a lot of public spaces, which was really cool. Uh, but also we were, you know, mid pandemic, like everything was digital. And because of that, like, I got to go to the Frankfurt Book Fair and the Las Vegas Book Fest, like places I probably wouldn't have been able to go if we were just in person. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of the pandemic, there were some more opportunities to, to go out there. And so those were really cool. I think more recently, I've been able to do a few things in person. Uh, with the second book coming out, I was signing some books at one of my local bookstores. Um, not like a signing. I just popped in to sign what they had in stock. And somebody walked by, saw me through the window, like stopped, said something to their partner and then like walked in, talked to me and bought both books off the street. And then when they walked back out, I looked at the book fell and was like, that ever happened? Like, has that ever happened before? <laughs> and then I went and made a TikTok about it. Um, but that was just like such a cool moment. And like to have colleagues, um, a friend of mine who I work with, he works down the hall. He's like, hey, so my wife was talking about your book? And then I told her, you work down the hall for me. And she was, so <laughs> I was like, that's just like unreal to me that uh-huh. people would kind of know who I am. And so that has just been really cool. On top of, like I mentioned earlier, the messages and they've come in with a second book which we can talk about much, but I can talk about the, mm-hmm. the content of that. Um, people messaging just to say, thank you for writing this. Or this is what it meant to me or this is how it's inspired me. Uh, It's not something I anticipated when I wrote the romance novels. I knew I'd get reviews and some people would like it. and Some people don't, totally true. Uh, But I didn't expect people to be so vulnerable and to trust me with their stories, particularly people I don't know. And that has been so moving. And I think that speaks to, you know, why I wanted to do student affairs in the first place and why it sustained me as a field Mm -hmm. is that idea of care and human connection and getting to have that with strangers over Twitter um, and you know Instagram and TikTok um, has been just really really cool.
0: I love that. Well, yeah. Why don't we take some time and talk about your second book? I know you've got others lined up. Um, what What would you like to share? You know, sure. show off your work. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, my second book just came out a month ago uh, in November. It's called The Fastest Way to Fall. And the thing I was so excited about this is the idea for it actually came uh, at the Women of Color Network Retreat um, at Iowa State, uh, which uh, is 10, 15 years old. I actually hadn't been involved um, very much with the program, but I was there at that year and we were doing some activity that I think I was leading or maybe I was participating in. I don't remember, but it was a self-reflection activity. And this is like this will get me kicked out of student affairs, but I actually actively hate having to do self-reflection <laughs> um, and like sitting quietly and being with my thoughts. It's just not my jam. I don't enjoy it, but you know, we make our students do it. So I was playing along. Mm-hmm. And either I asked or the person facilitating asked, whoever did that, the question was, you know, what was the time you felt strong? or something along those lines. And at the time I thought about being in the gym and I thought about being on the elliptical and just finishing like a really hard workout and the beating the person next to me and like in our competition, granted the person next to me was probably in their seventies and they did not know we were competing, but I knew we were competing and I won. (laughs) And you know, that feeling of just for me feeling like I could take over the world and I had just finished drafting, um, how to fill up flirting. We haven't sold it yet, Uh, but I was thinking about what I wanted to write next. And I thought about, you know, what would it be like to meet the love of your life in that moment where you feel like you could take over the world? Um, where you feel so strong and so good about yourself, what would it mean to meet a, the person you love in that moment? Mm. Um, I'm married and I was at the time. So I wasn't trying to like meet somebody at the gym, but that's where the idea for the fastest way to fall came from. And it centers uh, Britta, who is a fat woman, who is an aspiring journalist. And she has the opportunity to review a body positive fitness app or an app that to be body positive. Um, so going into this, she really doesn't care about changing her body. She's not particularly interested in the the fitness angle, but it's a good opportunity for her professionally. And I always share at the very beginning, it is not a story about weight loss, nor is that even really talked about in the book, but it's really a story about strength. And so she, along the way, joins this fitness app and is writing about her journey with it, along with another writer. Um, And then on the other side, she meets her online personal trainer who actually happens to own the company who is the hero. Uh, Wes was in How to Felt Flirting. He is uh, in that book, the self defense coach for Naya and her best friend Felicia, and kind of works out with them. And so you meet him again in this book. And he is at a point of, I would say, personal and professional professional, um, crisis, existential dread. I I don't know, he's not happy being a CEO and being in this corporate space. He has a lot of family uh, issues with his. sister who has kind of a strange and his mom is dealing with addiction. And so he's in a pretty dark place, um, throughout. And really the book is about strength, about physical strength, but really about emotional strength and finding a person who helps you feel strong and makes you want to be stronger. And so again, they have a lot of the like flirty fun banter, but you also get some of those traumatic pieces, particularly for the hero, um, that are touching kind of the experience and that was a lot of fun to write. It's a little bit different story. Um, they start as friends in romance. It's what we call a slow burn. So the burning happens towards the end of the book. You get a lot of buildup of the friendship. And that one doesn't take place in higher ed. But I do think some of those ideas that we talk about, and I even think about training on um, on eating disorder awareness and, and fitness and health, but um, that trauma response piece, in addition to, like competition and organizational structure, all of that comes into it. And then on top of that, the heroine is still writing for this magazine. And so all of her chapters open with an excerpt from social media. And that's kind of the breaking the third wall. That's where we get to talk about bodies and relationship with bodies and you know, happiness with her body. And um, something that was really important to me in this book was showing a fat woman, I think a fat person in general, but she's a fat woman um, moving through life Generally happy with her body, but also kind of navigating the actual real-world choppy waters that come with, you know, body size and body size discrimination and what people think. Um, so that was um, in romance. That's kind of a third rail. You're not supposed to touch it. And I decided let's do that with my sophomore <laughs> novel. Uh, but I think it, it's really landed well with people, and that's really exciting. Uh, and again, it's a lot fun and flirty, and the hero is pretty dreamy if you like heroes, and I think the heroine's pretty dreamy too. Um, so yeah, that book is out now the fastest way to fall. And for all of my books, I have content warnings on my website too, if folks kind of want to see what they're getting into. Mm -hmm. But I distinctly remember I early on in drafting this, I put out a call for some friends to read it. And I particularly was looking for folks who identified as fat or who were very into exercise just to get, you know, reactions and how the book was landing. Mm -hmm. And a former student who's now in student affairs asked me, is it, um, you know, what's the tone of the book? Is it, is it fat positive or is it fat, um, fat, um, fat phobic. And I remember like pausing on that. And I think at the time I just said, I think it's fat neutral. Like it's really not about fat and body size. It's more like our relationship with our body. But I thought about that a lot, just in terms of those issues that our training, I think it's student affairs helps us to raise. I don't know if that person ever read the book, actually, I should follow up with them, but um, I think I landed on the right side of that, but that was really weaving in a lot of those past experiences, and again, not directly in a higher education setting, because that's not where it takes place, um, although I do mention being the last, uh, submitting your housing contract late and ending up in the residence hall you didn't maybe want, so there's a little bit of super much there, but <laughs> um, that one also touches on education and the role of teachers, and the, the hero grew up, his mom was an addict. He grew up in poverty. And he talks about, here are how teachers shaped my experience. Um, here's how they shaped my life. And you know, he, and education comes up in several ways in that book, too, in terms of um, the hero and kind of what he wants to do and, and how helping kids can be a way um, to kind of find some satisfaction. So don't want to give away any spoilers, but that is all in the second book.
0: Do you have, are, are there characters? So I know you are, you have other books in process coming out soon, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have characters from your first two books showing up in those books as well? Or are they new scenarios, new people? what What's the vision yeah. for those books?
1: So for all my novels, they all take place in the same universe, I say So they're all standalone. You could read one and not read the other, and not miss anything. Um, but yeah, in the you know in the second book you get to go to the wedding of the people from the first book, and you get to see some of those characters. And the um, the Aaron character that you talked about is is in the second book, and you know they're looking for partners with the the school programming they're doing, and so you see them. And in my third book, you get to see some of those characters as well. So it's all in the same universe, which I think is fun, just because you know you meet these characters, and if you like them, you want to see them again. I also have this little tick where if I write especially a woman character who is kind of the bad guy or the villain I want her to have her own story down the line and so uh one of the I would say antagonists from the first book um who was connecting the hero is in the third book and you see her kind of in a different light and I think that's just my at smashing the patriarchy but um that's all the same I have three novellas that are out next summer that are all in a new universe um, I think I mentioned Thurston University or something along those lines, but that's about it. You don't meet any of the characters from the other books. And those are really fun to write. They're all short. They're all about 30,000 words, so about a third of a novel. And um, they all take place in and around this fictional airport. And so, you know, you're with an airport dog groomer and a frequent flyer who end up having a fake dating relationship inside the airport. So if you can think of dates you might go on during a layover, read the book because I, I brainstormed all of them. And then the second is actually uh, in academia. So it's two rival faculty members in chemistry. I think I put them in chemistry. And uh, they have to travel together on a five institution tour to talk about STEM education. And so you get a touch of their research agendas too, but I could, couldn't fake it quite as well with chemistry. So I had a two hour conversation with a chemist so I could get enough words in there that made sense. Um, And then the third one is two best friends who meet on the Zoom meeting when they're in college. And now they both work in the airport and they have to solve the mystery of a missing love letter before one of them leaves the country on a study abroad trip in five days. And so those are a whole new universe, but it was fun to craft them. And they're kind of lighter stories. There's not as many like heavier social issues in those. And so I hope we'll be a good summer escape. Should not have planned to write four of them, four of those books in one year. That was a lot. Uh, but I turned in the last one two days ago. So <laughs> woo, deadline met.
0: That's great. I kind of love that you um because you said earlier that chemistry was your obstacle to medical school, but who has the last <laughs> laugh now? Chemistry, huh?
1: Right, right. Well, let's see if I got all the if it makes sense once it's edited. But <laughs> right.
0: well, okay, so I was thinking about this as we've been talking, and I know that you've done I, I don't know if you keep track, but I know you've done quite a few interviews. So, what should I be asking you? What have other people asked, and you're like, "Ooh, that's a really good question," and I'm gonna <laughs> take some notes for future episodes. But what, what, what should I be asking, or what other things would you like to talk about?
1: Oh my gosh, um, I think you had good questions. I've actually never done an interview that related to. Student affairs. Like uh-huh. folks have asked me about academia, and that's when I have to explain. Oh, I'm not a professor, but I teach sometimes and you explain student affairs. Um and so this has been fun to like link those two worlds because in my head they're very linked, but you know, most people don't know what student affairs is. And so that's a whole different thing. Um so I, you know, I think what I've really loved to talk about that we've touched on is that reaction to people and um thinking about like heavier topics and romance. But I think the other thing for me that's been interesting is just the response of Colleagues in general um, and I don't know if anybody excuse me listening is thinking about writing or is a writer but when I first started writing to be writing romance and someone would say oh what are you doing I would say in a real small voice oh I'm writing a book and they'd say oh what's it about and I would say in an even quieter voice it's romance <laughs> and then in barely above a peep or a whisper I would say it's pretty sweet and that is so common for folks I have friends I have a friend who has a huge book out. It is selling everywhere. It is a runaway success. They're in academia. Nobody that they work with knows about it because they know and they think rightly that, you know, I would say internalized and externalized misogyny around what romance is and who it's for and the value of that kind of in academic settings is looked down on. Uh, and so that's actually been really important to me is that I don't whisper it anymore. You know, if somebody, I probably talk about the book more than people want, but, you know, if people ask me, I say, oh, I write romance, and here's what it's about, and it, you know, always centers women of color, and, and you know, here's some of the social issues. And nine times out of 10, people are really excited about that, even in, you know, a higher education setting where some of that um, literary pretension could maybe exist. I've seen so many people who have said, oh, I read romance too, I never talk about it. And romance has this, not just academia in general, this reputation of quote being by and for women which is not true it's very inclusive as a genre it includes people of all gender identities and it's read by people of all gender identities but there's this idea that if it's a love story and it's you know marketed to women or has traditionally been marketed to women it's it's fluffy it's not literary it's poorly written it's it's mommy porn you know there's there's so many different like terms there and so i like being able to challenge that in some ways, because romance is not everybody loves reading romance, which is fine. But you know, romance as a genre is doing so much around so many of the tenets that we talk about in affairs around equity, around inclusion, around um, you know power and agency, around um, sexual liberation. So many things that we know to be part of developmental processes, those are happening in romance novels, and it's more fun to read them in romance novels than it is to read them in an article. Uh, Because it's about people. It's a story. It's a love story. Um, And so I try to share those things when I can, because I do think it's a genre that's doing a lot and is still often looked down on. And, you know, if somebody gets snarky with me, I'm also just, you know, I'll drop a little flex and be like, oh, well, my book's coming out from Penguin Random House. How are you living? Um, I (laughs) haven't had to do that much, but I actually teach a class on it now. It's an honors seminar that I teach my friend, Emily Wilcox. This will be our third year teaching it. And uh, we called it uh, Moving Past Bodice Ripping Toward Shredding the Patriarchy, Romance Novels as Tools for Social Justice. Oh, wow. And we're introducing often students to romance novels. We're having them read some, but we're talking about here's what the genre is. We're talking about tenets of social justice and then having them read books that look at that. So um, for example, um, um, Ability. And how are we seeing ability represented? And what does our um, representation of ability in terms of a love story have to do with our social construction of ability? Mm-hmm. And you know, have them go, okay, find romance novels with uh, somebody in a wheelchair on the cover. Uh, go find romance novels with you know, this body size on the cover or describe what does it look like, How's it's talked about. Uh, and so that has just been awesome. And the first time we offered it, we put it online too because we put it on Twitter because that's where I live and just said, hey, we're doing this. Doesn't it sound cool? And so many people were like, can you offer it online? And we were like, yeah, sure, I'm no big deal. I thought maybe 50 people would sign up, uh, 600 people signed up. So for that first oh. semester, uh, we have the class you know, with our students and grading and doing projects. And then every week we would send out all the course materials virtually to this group of 600. And then once a week we would host like a virtual chat um, on Twitter. And that was amazing. I will not be doing that again for a while because it was really time consuming, but it was great to see some of those conversations and again, like worlds merging. Mm-hmm.
0: That is, that's phenomenal.
1: Okay, that, That's my pitch to anybody listening who doesn't read romance novels. I can give you a bunch of recs, but there is so much going on with, with inclusive romance. And again, especially in that lens alone, there's mm-hmm. just so much joy to be had there in, thinking about how we and how our students can see ourselves in love stories and you know see love stories that look like ours in there, whether that is around, again, age, ability, sexual orientation, gender expression, um, uh, race and ethnicity, like there's just, I don't know, so much there.
0: So you bring your student affairs insight and experience to your romance writing. Will you ever bring your romance writing to academic publication? Like, would you just in listening to you talk about this course, I'm like, I could see that as a book or a journal article, or have you thought about that? Or is is that not the direction that you wanna go with the work? What are your thoughts?
1: I actually haven't thought about that, but now my mind is spinning and we, we shared the same major professor. And so every time I tell um, Anne one of these ideas, I feel like I get a new assignment. Um, but that, you know, it would be interesting to write. Even I think about like just the practice of teaching the class. Mm-hmm. and thinking about different ways to talk about DEI and social justice and you could teach that class with fantasy you could teach that class with sci-fi mm-hmm. um obviously that wouldn't be as much fun as romance but uh you know you could teach that in so many different ways and yeah i have thought about that but now i'm like oh what could i be presenting at ncore nasa this year seriously um student affairs in the side hustle because it's yeah. it's interesting it's also interesting to learn a new business like a new field mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i'm i'm not not a fully seasoned student affairs professional, but I've been at this for a while and I've been at my institution for a long time. So I maybe have a little bit of professional and institutional hubris. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then I entered this whole new world of publishing, which if you can believe it, is maybe a bit more um, convoluted than higher education Mm -hmm. and a bit more maybe traditional in a lot of ways. And so it was figuring out, you know, how do I be a new professional again? Like how do I figure out who the players are? And of course I have an agent, who can help me with that and I have you know an editor and a, a PR and marketing team at at Berkeley with Penguin Random House who are amazing and some great friends and mentors but it also took me back to being a new professional in student affairs you know, like I went to my first conference and I had to figure out like what do we do with this romance conference I only got to go to one before that organization kind of ended and very publicly which you can find um and then the pandemic but it, it was kind of that throwback to not changing careers, but like figuring out a new professional identity too. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Okay. So um, people are listening to this and they're like, you know, I might want to get started if it, whether it's this specific genre or not, what advice would you have to people who are looking at um, engaging in more creative writing exploration, um, you know, what, what are your lessons learned?
1: Several. Um, the first is, uh, and I think this is actually true for all writing, but the role of a first draft is only to exist. The only oh, thing a first draft has to do is exist. And so many people stop writing because the first draft isn't perfect. Or they write that first chapter and it, it's not perfect. And then they stop. And there are many points in writing where you want to stop uh, in my personal experience. But um, yeah, I think if we get around that, and I'm actually working with, um, he was a student, who's graduated now, It's um, kind of asked me to be kind of a writing mentor. And i was like, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> uh, but you know, that's what we've been talking about, that idea of how you keep going. But that's the first and foremost is, you know, write the graph. And um, National Novel Writing Month is the month of November. It just finished where people are challenged to write 50,000 words in a month. I love NaNoWriMo. I haven't been able to do it in the last couple of years, but that's how I wrote my second novel. It's how I wrote a lot of the first novel actually. Um, And that's a huge online community. And so the accountability is there. And so I think if you're somebody who needs accountability, find it, whether it's virtual, Again, I've done a a lot of my writing I owe to people I've never met in person. Um, So there's a lot of opportunities virtually or if it's in person, find that group of people who will hold you accountable. And I actually have a a group of folks who meet every Sunday on Zoom for about four hours. And we maybe talk more than we write, but, you know, we say, okay, we're going to sprint now. We'll see each other in an hour. We keep our cameras on and we mute and we all go write, And then we come back and talk about it. Um, I have other friends who I'll write in person with, like we'll meet up in each other's office just over the lunch break and you know, hold ourselves accountable for not getting on Twitter, not checking email, not doing something else, but actually writing. And whatever that system is for you, like hold yourself accountable. Um, I think just general advice is read fervently in the genre you're writing in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that's true for academic writing too, obviously. Like read, read some articles before you write some, but you'll also see what the tenets of the genre are. Like I said, writing romance is very different than my academic training even like you know punctuation and um the chicago style manual chicago style manual versus apa and some of those things you just will pick up as you read and so that can really help but i think the final thing is you know if you want to tell the story then write it and Mm -hmm. you know you write it for you first and you might sell it you might not somebody else might read it they might not but just write it and it's going to get better and it won't be Perfect the first time. At least I've never met anybody who writes perfect the first time, except for Michelle. Um, and so, I don't. I don't know if that's helpful advice for anybody, but those have been helpful things for me, particularly the first draft thing.
0: You know, I and I wrote down what you said about the purpose of the first draft is only to exist. That's, um, we forget that. You know, we forget yeah. there's this mythology about if it's not beautiful, it's not worth working with, and that's that's just not the way it goes, so.
1: Everything can be edited, that. especially right. a first draft. And, right. you know, I think even about with both all of my novels, because um, I've sold three novels at this point, and there were four novels and the three novellas, but all of those at a certain point, I looked at it, and actually the book I just finished a few days ago, uh, my working title was Garbage Book. So I'm like, <laughs> this is- this is not good. It's not, and I was, it wasn't to the standard I wanted. And this was happening as my second novel came out to some acclaim. Um, and my first novel was up nationally for a best romance award. Like I saw those accolades, I know I'm a good writer, but I still was calling my book garbage book. And my husband's like, You really need to stop calling it that. I'm like, no, but kind of now I kind of like it as a title. <laughs> um Regardless, but uh, I, I think writing, like like a lot of other things, it's just a lot of time to doubt yourself. Mm-hmm. And when you have those people around you who can give you good feedback, that's really helpful. Uh, but also, I mean, this is maybe this is petty, but if you're really worried about your writing, go find your favorite book and look at the one star reviews for it on Amazon. And I mean, go look mm-hmm. at Pride and Prejudice and find the one star reviews for you. Find your favorite book, and you'll <laughs> see that you are writing for people who will love your book and no, there's no book ever that is universally loved. And mm-hmm. so I think that takes some pressure off too.
0: I love that. I, I'm going to go do that just for my own amusement now. Oh, it's, it's
1: fascinating. I don't I look at it. my own reviews, but I will definitely look at other people. <laughs> <schools. laughs> well,
0: I I'm about to move into wrap up mode, but I do want to leave the door open. Is there anything else that you want to um say about your work or offer to the audience or like i say anything i should have asked that i didn't <laughs>
1: um, i can't think of anything in particular and i don't know if it'll be in the show notes but you can find me on um twitter and instagram and tiktok i'm at nick will my uh on my website is uh, uh denise williams and i have information on all the books there and you know, the purchase information but also like the content warnings the summary some of the accolades. I also have puzzles for both of my book covers, which uh, I don't know if you're still in puzzle mode. I am, but it's kind of fun to do. Uh, and some other like goodies um, that I have on there. So all that information is is on my website. And again, you can find me on all the social platforms if you want to see me making a fool of myself. TikTok is a pretty good spot for that. I look a little bit cooler on Instagram than I am in real life, and TikToks or uh, Twitter is just a, a chaos demon version of myself, which is maybe how I am in real life too.
0: We need different spaces to surface (laughs) different things. So, well, the last question I have for you is, um, and this, I mean, overwhelmingly, the energy in this conversation has been really positive. So it's not like, you know, let's bring ourselves out of this downer place. That's not the point (laughs) of the question, but what is something in your world right now? It could be related to your writing, work, Life, family, whatever. But what's something that is bringing you hope?
1: Um, there, there are a lot of things. Um, it's probably my son, um, who is five and eternally joyful, and so creative. It makes me so happy all the time. The squirrel toots. Uh, maybe that'll turn into a book. I don't know, but um, he just always brings me joy in that he finds these different outlets and he's an only child. He just started kindergarten. And so I get to see him kind of starting this educational journey
0: Mm.
1: in the way that he does. And I don't know, I think children bring, I think a lot of joy. So maybe that's kind of a cop-out answer, but it's just really fun. Like seeing the world through his eyes, like he got his second COVID shot yesterday and the way he was excited about that and just framed it in like the way that we would frame it. And like how he kind of took his own take on it. I don't know. I just I think that's really exciting to see a kid grow into their own person, but also just start to make sense of the world. And he's just a really creative kind of weird kid. Um, and so that is that's really fun to see.
0: That's great. Yeah. Um, please do let me know when uh, Squirrel Toots or Toot Squirrels, whatever he lands on, when that comes out, we'll have him on about that as well. So.
1: Okay. Well, his first books: um, Snake, Snake, Snake. And give golden enchivivans a chance. Uh, I have been bound recently. Uh, what a golden enchivivan and how you spell it is, I don't know because he was telling me to write it. And I was like, Is it Ent? No, golden enchivivan. I'm like, That's not a real word though. Can you tell me that? So I uh, would think about shot
0: Don't stifle the creative energy.
1: No, I would never. Don't would let know. him
0: get bogged down with spelling. He'll get to that. So. <laughs> Well, thank you again, Denise. I mean, I really, I enjoy our conversations and this was a great one and um, just fun to learn about your process and your success. And um, I wish you all the best and I hope you get a little bit of a break before book five is due. So (laughs) relax for a minute. okay?
1: (laughs) Maybe a little one. Thank you so much for having me on. And this was so much fun. Again, I've never done an interview that connected back to student affairs. And so I love it. And yeah, maybe uh, I'll be thinking about that research agenda, maybe a a meetup at one of the conferences for people who want to write or are writing.
0: I just have to believe it it would be like, hey, would you offer this online? And you've got a session and you're like, yeah, I hope 15 people show up. And then it's like, you know, spilled out into the hallway, standing room (laughs) only kind of thing. So, because I do, I think the idea of addressing issues around race and patriarchy and all of the topics that you talked about it almost seems counterintuitive that you would do that through romance but not the way that you've talked about it today so yeah
1: yeah
0: reframing that whole concept is is really cool so well okay i'll
1: think about it
0: (laughs) okay well when you write that article then we'll do a follow-up episode to this oh
1: yeah well i assume you're going to co author it with me oh all right okay Sweet. (laughs) And if you're listening, look, we're being productive.
0: (laughs) That's right. That's right. It's all about collaboration. So, well, thank you again. Um, I enjoyed our conversation. Please give my best to our Iowa State colleagues. I I always miss Iowa State in the fall, but it's going to be 77 degrees here. And that makes me not miss it quite as much. Uh, although maybe it's warm there too. Today. I mean, I
1: was just looking at my phone because it's
0: 50 degrees here, which isn't 70. But oh, it's 10. but it's an Iowa <laughs> 70. in, yeah, the, uh, in, uh, Iowa in December. <laughs> All right. Well, today's essay today podcast is brought to you by Saxa and we thank them for their support. Additionally, this show would not be possible without my friend and producer Jen Lowe at the university of South Florida, as always, Jen. Thank you for your assistance and support. And as we close, I would like to leave you with a quote. This one is from Toni Morrison. If there's a book you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it, which I think kind of ties in with the theme of our conversation today. So thanks to each of you for listening. My name is Michelle Botcher. It has been a pleasure to host this episode and have a beautiful day.